Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Yesterday, the government reported a surprise upward revision to the original estimate for third quarter GDP. The first estimate was 3.5%, and pretty much everybody was looking for a downward revision. The consensus was down to 3.3%. Some estimates were as low as 3%. Even personally, I thought maybe we would have come in just below 3%. The reason was all of the economic data that had been released since the first estimate was way below expectations, way below what the government statisticians had used when they were preparing their original estimate. So since the data that we actually had was not as good as what was anticipated at the time of the estimate, it you know made sense that they would have to make a downward revision. Instead, they pretty much upwardly revised just about every category so that now, according to the government, GDP increased at 3.9% for the third quarter. Now, it's still below the fourth quarter, but a solid number. So two back-to-back big numbers. When you average it in with a minus 2.1, I guess, from the first quarter, I think now we're on an annual pace of 2% for the entire year. Now, I'm still scratching my head at this uh, revision. They're going to revise it again. Uh, So who knows? Maybe they'll make a downward revision the last time they do it. And I still anticipate that the fourth quarter is going to be significantly below not only the third quarter, but below the expectations. Because not only has all the economic data, or almost all of it, been weak, look at the data we got this week. 
it's been one bad report after another. In fact, it's like a deluge of bad economic data that is washing over the economy and the markets, and no one seems to care. I mean, you get a trickle of good news, but then you get you know, a tidal wave of bad news, and people keep talking about how great the economy is. In fact, after we got the release of the, um, the third quarter GDP, Kramer, Jim Kramer on CNBC was just ranting about, oh my God, he says stuff like, you know, we've got the, we've got the strongest economy on the planet Earth, with it, maybe except for India, which is nowhere near the case. I mean, there are plenty of economies that are doing better than 2% growth uh, for the year. To say that we've got the strongest economy in the world except for India. And of course, you have to look beneath the surface. What is the source of our supposed economic growth? It's debt and consumption and financial bubbles. Certainly, if you want to look at the U.S. economy based on exports, uh, based on you know, production, manufacturing, a savings rate, things like that, um, clearly we're not even close to one of the strongest economies in the world. So we're not productive. We're just blowing more money than other economies. We're just going into debt faster than other economies, and we're spending that borrowed money faster. So we're simply mortgaging our futures at a rate that no other economy can match. To say it means that we're the strongest economy on the earth is just this mindless cheerleading that you get on the you know, conventional um, financial channels. But let's go over. This is only Wednesday. And Wednesday, we got, I'm going to count the economic numbers we got out this morning. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine data points were released. Nine for nine were below estimates, expectations. Nine out of nine. I mean, what's the odds of that? I mean, if you were going to get random uh, numbers that were above estimates or below, but you're nine for nine, and not only below, but way below. You're talking, in most cases, really bad numbers, not just below estimates, but bad numbers, nine out of nine. And I'll get to the economic statistics that came out this morning, but let's backtrack to Monday and look at some of the bad news that we got there. First of all, the Chicago Fed National um, Activity Index, that was supposed to come in at 0.5. Instead, it came in at 0.14, 0.14. They revised last month's from 0.47 to 0.29. And now the three-month moving average, which last month stood at 0.25, which was now revised to just 0.12, is now a negative 0.01. So a pretty big deterioration in the National Activity Index as measured by the Chicago Fed. Then on Monday, we got the PMI uh, flash services number, that was, I think, the biggest, the lowest number in seven months. They, they were looking for 57.8. Instead, they got 56.3. So a pretty big uh, reduction from the, the prior month. And we got the, yeah, the, the Dallas Fed manufacturing. I think the estimate was around 12. We got 10 and a half. Um, the, the index for the prior month was at 13.7. Production index at 13.7. That down to 6.0. That one wasn't too terrible. But again, the numbers are coming in worse than expected. And even yesterday, when we got the GDP report for the third quarter, we also got corporate profits for the third quarter, which were way down over the prior quarter. Last quarter, we had 4.6%. Now we're down to 3.8%. 
in corporate profits. That's a big plunge in corporate profits. I mean, supposedly the economy is growing, but corporate profits are shrinking. What else do we get? Uh, we got the Case-Shiller Index yesterday. And that, again, was another bad report, especially if you look beneath the surface. And year over year, the, the price increases continue to decline. The prior month, we were at year-over-year price increases of 5.6%. Now we're down to 4.9% on, on Case-Shiller. So again, the housing recovery, the bubble that was reflated by the Fed, uh, that bubble is fading. You know, and by the way, I recall when Kramer was ranting about, you know, the economy. And if you have a strong economy, it doesn't matter what the Fed does. Well, what if the only reason your economy looks strong is because of the Fed? To say it doesn't matter what the Federal Reserve is doing when it's all about the Fed, it's all about cheap money. That's the only thing that matters. That's the problem. Because the real economy, the real profitability of corporations, not the, the engineering they can do with share buybacks and cheap money. It's all about the Fed and, he, and, and the fact that Kramer doesn't even understand this. The big number, though, one of the bigger shockers from Tuesday was the consumer confidence number. This was a huge drop. They were looking for 96.5 for consumer confidence. And this was for November, right? They're looking for 90, 90, 96.5. And they got 88.7. I mean, that's well below the lowest estimate anyone had was 94.8. 88.7. And they even revised last month's down from 94.5 to 94.1. But that's a huge plunge. So if the economy is so much better than everybody thinks, why are corporate profits going down and why is consumer confidence plunging? I mean, it's still high, but nowhere near as high as it was. I mean, why is it improving along with the supposed improvement of the economy? And I think that this number is just beginning to fall. And remember, this is happening against the backdrop of lower oil prices, which oil prices, by the way, continue to fall this week. <clears throat> I think we're now below $74 a barrel as OPEC is failing to agree on any kind of production cuts. But again, I think the weakness in oil is temporary because it's based A, on the global slowdown, but B, on the strength of the dollar, which is predicated on the false belief that we have a legitimate U.S. recovery and that as such, the Fed can stop doing QE and raise rates. Neither of those assumptions is true. But, uh, oh, Rich, Richmond Fed. We got Richmond Fed yesterday, and that number was a big drop. Last month was 20. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest drops we've had in this index. The consensus was for 16 for the current November. And the range was between 12 and 24. That was the range of estimates. So the lowest estimate out there was for a number of 12 for the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index. The high was 24. We got four. Four. That's it. 75% below would have been estimated, right? And what, 80% below or whatever the prior month. So again, another really bad look at the U.S. economy when the GDP was just upwardly revised. But Wednesday, today, so far has been, again, this has been the biggest uh, you know, data dump because Thursday, tomorrow, the market is closed. So all the economic data that we would have got on Thursday was dumped on the markets today. So we got nine big releases. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, we are nine out of nine in missing expectations. Nine for nine. And the economy is supposedly so great. 
First, let's look at uh, mortgage applications. They were down 4.3% on the week. And more importantly, the purchase index, right? And this is despite these really low interest rates. The purchase index was down 10%, 10% drop. So the refinance index was down 4%. So when most of the mortgages are refis now, they're not purchases. So the, the composite index, which includes purchases and refis, was down 4.3%. But that got the bad news started. Then we got the durable goods numbers, October durable goods. And on the surface, it was better than estimates because they were looking for minus 0.5 and they got plus 0.4. The problem is that was all the result of about a 45% surge in military aircraft parts that were ordered. So when you strip out transportation, which that category is in, instead of up 0.5, which was the consensus, we got minus 0.9. Minus 0.9. And in fact, ex-defense, it was a negative number too, even if you, uh, but ex-transportation, which is what a lot of people look at as the key number because you get rid of the volatility, we were down 0.9. Big miss over the expectation of plus 0.5. Another negative economic report. Then we got the jobless claims, which normally would come out tomorrow. Now remember, last week I said that we were inching closer to 300,000. I thought we were going to go through it. Last month, we got 291,000, which was the fourth week in a row that unemployment, weekly unemployment claims had gone up, and the fourth week in a row that we had missed expectations for them to go down. Well, now it's five weeks in a row, because the consensus was for a drop to 286,000. Instead, we exploded up to 313,000 weekly claims. So my prediction there was right. Uh, we're now back above 300,000, and I think we're headed higher. And just to add insult to injury, as they normally do, they revised last month's up. Not a lot, but from 291 to 292. So they made last week's worse, and this week an explosion uh, up 21,000 jobs, up, 20, up 22,000 jobless claims from the original 291 estimate of the prior week. So that's pretty bad news for a Fed that's trying to hang its hat on the reduction in unemployment. Then we got personal income and spending. Here's another big miss. The consensus was for personal income to rise by 0.4 and personal spending to rise by 0.3. Instead, both were up by 0.2. So on the income front, we got half the gain that was anticipated. And spending went up as much as income, which means the savings rate stayed the same at 5% because pretty much everything that was earned was spent. But again, I think a healthy economy generates savings because people have more money than they need. They don't, they don't have to spend every last cent they have on food and electricity. They have enough to save, enough left over to save, and now the savings can finance capital investment. But none of that is going on. But again, if you're looking for consumer spending, uh, to, to, to rise, you ain't going to get it based on this lax luck or income. Now, of course, the government, they're claiming that prices are up 1.6% year over year. That's the core PCE. That's what the Fed looks at. Uh, and so they think, well, you know, we're still, you know, beating that maybe because year over year uh, income uh, and spending are up higher than 1.6%. But again, I don't believe that 1.6% number. I think it's higher, and so I think adjusted for a realistic inflation rate, uh, incomes and spending are declining, uh, not, not rising. Chicago PMI, 
That came out this morning. And what did we get there? The consensus estimate was 63.2. We got 60.8. That's a pretty significant miss. It's down 66.2 from October, the November, you know, uh, 60.8. You know, there were some people looking as high as 65. The lowest estimate was 62. Of all the analysts surveyed, the lowest estimate was 62. We got 60. So again, we got lower than the lowest estimate, which seems to be par for the course these days. Not only you're coming in below consensus, but coming in below the lowest possible estimate of what the number should be. What did we get on consumer sentiment? That was another index that came out today. Okay, this one was not that bad. It still missed. They were looking for 90 and they got 88.8. Although that's still below the lowest uh, estimate. The consensus of opinion was for 89.5 all the way up to 94.8. And instead, we got 88.8. So again, we're below the low end of the range, even though the consensus was 90. We didn't, so we didn't miss the consensus by that much. But again, it's still a miss on that one. Um, you know, I don't know. There was a Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index came out at 40.7. That was slightly above the prior month. But you know what? I don't know what the estimate was. So actually, I don't know if this one was a miss because I can't tell what they were looking for. So maybe we, I, I don't know. Maybe it's not nine for nine. I think I was counting that one. It might be, it, it might be nine for nine, but it might only be eight for nine. I'm not, I guess I can't tell what they were looking for. But new home sales numbers came out. Uh, these were below estimates. That's for sure. They were looking for 470,000. Instead, we got 458,000. Not quite below the lowest estimate of 440, but well below the top end of 490, 458. Inventories, though, of unsold homes continue to grow. So that doesn't you know, bode well for that index in the future, nor does the pending home sale index. That came out. That also came out below estimates. They were looking, well, actually, last month was 105. We got 104.1. I don't know what the consensus was now. I'm looking at this. I know that uh, pending home sale index month over month. Yeah, the consensus here for the month over month uh, was 0.6, a plus 0.6. The range was a plus 0.2 all the way down to a minus one. Right. So some people thought the index of pending home sales would go up 2%. The most negative forecast was it would drop by 1%. The consensus, the mean where everybody was, was plus 0.6. What did we get? Minus 1.1. So we exceeded the lowest estimate. We were below the lowest estimate, well below the consensus. So again, I mean, it's a deluge. It's not just a trickle. Uh, It's a a flood of bad economic news. Yet people are still looking back at yesterday's GDP number and thinking the economy is great. Everything is great. Nothing to worry about. You know, an interesting thing in the gold market, when the better than expected GDP numbers came out, gold didn't sell off. I was was expecting it to based on that shocker of a release. And initially it went down a few bucks, down about five bucks. But by the end of the day, it finished close to unchanged, just back above 1,200. But then it didn't get a lift from all the bad economic news that came out after the GDP. And, and so far this morning, it's about unchanged, maybe down a buck or two at the most, despite all this negative news uh, that uh, came out today. So I don't know why gold is kind of stuck 
in, in you know just in a in a holding pattern. Maybe everybody's waiting for the Swiss referendum. Uh, that vote's coming up over the weekend. Gold stocks, though, were up about 4% on the day yesterday. So they had a move, even though uh, the price of gold did not. And today, you know, you're seeing gold stocks uh, just slightly, slightly down. Although there's a few scattered, scattered stocks that are positive on the day. And the dollar is generally softer. In fact, the euro is now trading back above 125. Dollar down against the pound today, uh, against the Aussie, Kiwi, Canadian. It's even down against the Japanese yen. So the dollar is, um, you know, weakening a little bit based on all this negative economic data. But it seems to me that everybody is just ignoring this. I mean, even though it's kind of like Chinese water torture with more and more bad news dripping out, uh, it just doesn't get through to people because they're still fixated on the fantasy of this great recovery. But the data doesn't support it. I mean, maybe these GDP numbers, but again, that's backward looking. We're looking at stuff that happened in the past. It was still influenced maybe by the holdback of all the stuff that didn't happen because of the, the snow and the cold weather from the first quarter. But all this new income, all this new data that's coming out is negative. And again, we're having all this negative data despite the huge tax cut of the big drop in gasoline prices. So the gasoline prices should be invigorating the consumer. Instead, it's just a lifeline uh, because otherwise the consumer would really be drowning. We still have a lot of expectations uh, for a good holiday season. We'll see. This is going to get started uh, Black Friday, although some of these uh, stores now are going to start on uh, Thanksgiving. Um, So it's not just Black Friday. But we'll see how this progresses you know throughout this shopping season i don't think it's going to be uh, as robust as people think in fact the fact that the layoffs are picking up now when you think all these stores would be hiring more people to help with all the christmas shopping the fact that now you got five weeks in a row and the unemployment claims are rising is probably not a good sign of what the holiday shopping season is going to be and again that's not a sign of the economy i mean how much people are willing to spend I mean, they always report this as if that's economic activity. The activity is what produces all the goods that everybody are spending. And of course, most of the stuff that people buy for Christmas is not made in the United States. I mean, maybe, probably what, maybe 1%, 2% of the stuff. I mean, think about all the gifts that you get uh, this holiday season or the gifts that you give. Try to find one that was made in the United States. That's, That's like a challenge. You know, to try to to try to find a gift or imagine if you had to restrict your gift giving to just products that were made in the United States. Right. Well, I mean, there'd be nothing under anybody's tree because, you know, first of all, you know, even the trees, I don't know, I think we probably import those from Canada. But I mean, if you got a fake tree, it wasn't made here, but I'm sure none of the wrapping paper uh, was made here. And, you know, you, you wouldn't even have anything to wrap your non-existent preference with or all the ornaments. I mean, there's probably not a single ornament that wasn't made in China or someplace like that. I can't imagine an ornament being unless it's like his handcrafted, really fancy little thing. But, uh, you know, most of the things on the trees, the light bulbs, the, um, you know, the, the, the whatever you, you know, whatever you, you, you decorate a Christmas tree with, um, all that stuff, all that stuff is important. So the whole holiday wouldn't exist in a sense of, you know, gifts and trees and stuff like that, if it wasn't for imports. But again, the media is going to is going to talk about the shopping as if that's the economy. And I'll, I'll talk more about that on on Friday. I'll do another podcast on Black Friday. And for now, I want to also remind everybody we're talking about holiday gifts and uh, you want to give the gift of economic understanding 
Uh, that's the gift that my father gave me, and you can experience it the same way I did by reading his book, the first book my father ever wrote, uh, The Biggest Con, How the Government is Fleecing You, which is an incredible book. I mean, my dad got one thing that I never got, mainstream reviews. He got hundreds of reviews from places like the Wall Street Journal. Real publication reviewed my father's book, and all the reviews were good. It was a great book. Um, it's, what, 350, 400 pages, jam-packed with economic logic and, and, and foresight and understanding. And I've read this book several times over the years, and I learn something new every time I read it. That's how good it is. And I always hear my dad's voice when I read it. it you know, it, it, I, I, you know, I can, I, it, it's even though I'm just reading silently, I can hear him speaking to me uh, because it, it, it really, I mean, it, he wrote it the way he, he, um, he thinks because he wrote the whole thing. He didn't have any help. And he wrote this book, you know, back before they had computers. He had to write it on a typewriter. And so he had to write it and rewrite it. And it was a very arduous process uh, doing what my dad did. Uh, it was so much easier for me to write. And I had help and I have computers. And, you know, uh, it was a different world. But it's a fantastic book. I think it's better than anything I've written. Uh, but if you want to know, um, you know, how I learned what I learned or why I think the way I think, you got to read this book. And the books that I've got, I'm, I was actually very happy to find out that I've got more books than I thought I had because I, I knew I had a limited number and I was happy when we cleaned out this uh, storage facility because I had transferred a bunch of stuff that my dad had in storage in uh, Las Vegas and I had it in my office here. We moved offices and I cleaned out a storage bin and we had a lot more of these books than I thought. I mean, we still don't have enough for everybody, but I've got a, a, a decent supply uh, but they're brand new. I mean, they've been in these boxes since the day they were printed. So they've never been opened. The pages are not frayed. I mean, they're as nice as the day they were first printed. So they're in excellent condition. I looked on Amazon. You know, they're selling the, the cheapest new copy I could find was $90. There are some people that are selling some used copies, and no one is selling the original hard copy. I only have one copy of that myself, and there's, there's no way I'm selling it. But I do have the paperbacks. And, you know, so I'm selling mine for 30 bucks, not $90, $30 plus with my auto autograph on it. Brand new autograph by me. I wish my dad could autograph it, uh, but he can't, but I can do it. Uh, so there's $30. If you, if you want to get another copy of the kingdom of malts, or if you didn't buy one before we were selling those for $25 a piece, I still have copies. So kingdom of malts is 25 biggest con is 30. If you want I got a package, one of each, while supplies last, of course, of the biggest con, which I expect to run out of uh, relatively soon, uh, certainly before. I have quite a few more of the, uh, the, the Maltzes. Uh, but if you want to get the package deal, you can get two for 50. Uh, and it makes a great Christmas gift, too, because you give the gift of logic and, 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 and understanding. But people need to read that book and, and really see how long. Right. This has been a long time coming, this U.S. economic collapse. It didn't just start. My dad wrote about it back then, and all the forces that he saw working to undermine the economy have played out over the decades. And just because we didn't have uh, the kind of collapse that he was envisioning, I mean, we certainly had a rough decade, the 1970s, and he nailed that. But a couple of things that happened that kind of postponed the day of reckoning till you know, about now, things that my father didn't anticipate when he wrote The Biggest Con. Number one was the enormous influx of women into the labor force. So my father was thinking about the ability of the economy to sustain itself based on the productivity of the males who were at working at the time. He wasn't factoring in all these women that would, you know, 
get out of the you know out of the house and, and and join the workforce. So that expanded the tax base and and so that bought us some time. And then the other thing that my father didn't envision at all was the degree to which we can borrow to finance our capital needs from you know countries like China, which was nothing when my dad wrote uh, the Biggest Con. So it was the labor of women and the ability to borrow enormous amounts of money from other countries and for other countries to supply America with the production that our economy could no longer produce. See, my dad was looking at our industrial base saying, well, how's America going to survive without the industry? Well, we survived based on Chinese industry. So there was no way to know at the time that we would be able to rely on the rest of the world to produce the goods that our factories were no longer capable of producing and to lend us the money that we were no longer saving. So these external factors happened, delayed the day of reckoning, but you read all the, the things that he write and you realize how uh, prescient he was and how before his time he was uh, when he wrote this book. So I couldn't, I can't stress enough how much you're going to love that book. And it's going to take you a long time to read. It's not a quick read like The Kingdom of Malts, which is, you know, you can read it in a, you know, what, a half hour? Not even. It's just, a, it's funny and it's great to give people to explain money. But it's going to take you a while to read through The Biggest Con. And in fact, like me, you're probably going to want to read it more than once. That's it for today. Hey, have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. And I will be doing another podcast on Black Friday. Bye for now. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.